Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Well, we are moving toward a Joe Biden, Kamala Harris presidency, vice presidency uh, fairly steadily, which is, you know, I suppose the good news. Um, I think along with a lot of other people shocked that as many mostly white people went out and voted for Donald Trump as did and other Republicans around the country who are still Trump humpers. I mean, it's all, in a way, very, very surprising. On the other hand, you know, we're not really sure in some places exactly, you know, what's going on with the ballots. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But, uh, you know, just relax. A lot of people are freaking out. The media plays this game, right? Their business is holding you watching them, right? Their entire business model depends on you're not leaving that TV screen so that they can deliver commercials to you. And so the election is always decided in the United States by between a half a dozen and a dozen states. This year it's gonna be around 12 states. It shouldn't be that way. I mean, already Joe Biden has several million more votes than Donald Trump. In fact, already Joe Biden has more votes, has received more votes than any candidate for president of the United States in the history of the United States. Let that sink in. And yet, because we don't do majority rule for president in the United States, we have this uh, electoral college loophole. Democrats need to start referring to it as a loophole. People hate loopholes. And it is a loophole. It's a loophole in the election law that allows a person to become president without actually winning the majority of votes. And we got to do something about that. Nationalpopularvote.com is a great place to start. But, you know, That's what's going on, and that's where we're going to go. But I wanted to share some other thoughts with you, but I'll bring you up to date on the mail-in ballots and what's up with Louis DeJoy, and we'll do a state-by-state and all that kind of stuff in just a minute. But I think that there's a large issue here, you know, the proverbial elephant in the room that nobody, of course, in the media is discussing. And it has to do with that old saying, own the media, own the country. And... How tight this election is right now, I think, absolutely proves that old saying. 
I mean, Democrats have been totally stupid when it comes to the information wars. The Republicans have built out a, an enormous national talk to every person in the country every single day or be available to talk to them every hour, every day, all year long media infrastructure. And Democrats just pour money into advertising once every four years. And that's crazy. I mean, in the 1970s and 1980s, the conservatives looked at the media landscape. And keep in mind, the, I believe it was in the late 1970s, maybe it was the early 80s when Alan Berg was assassinated. The nationally, well, he wasn't nationally syndicated. He was in a station in Denver that blew a signal out over 27 states. The number one progressive talk show host in America, Alan Berg. And he was assassinated by two skinheads from the Aryan Nation who are, I believe, now in prison. And a year or so later, Rush Limbaugh starts up. But, you know, we used to have actually you know, a fairly robust local progressive media across the United States. But as Limbaugh was taking off at the same time, or, or you know, shortly thereafter, the media ownership rules got changed multiple times, actually, leading up to 96 and then after 96. And as a result of this, you've got these giant, you know, media monsters with, there is literally no place in America right now where you cannot turn on an AM radio and, or an FM radio for that matter in most cases and hear right-wing hate radio. And yet, you know, while Sirius XM is nationwide, a lot of people don't have Sirius XM. They, they listen to their AM or FM radio. And if you turn on your AM radio in most of America, certainly 95% of America, you cannot find progressive talk radio. And that's a problem, right? And the conservatives have built this huge infrastructure of think tanks that provide you know, a steady stream of articles and columns and all that kind of stuff, you know, promoting tax cuts for the rich and trickle-down economics and deregulation of polluting and banking and polluting industries and banking and all this kind of stuff. And now they've built out, they own literally hundreds, maybe thousands of radio stations, hundreds of television stations, hundreds of websites that purport to be news websites, and are on a daily basis, these think tanks, at least one of these think tanks that I know of, editing Wikipedia and other public source websites. And now they're expanding this to Spanish language stuff in a big way. And we're seeing the results of that in this election, this investment, this huge investment about six or eight years ago in Spanish language radio stations around the country. Now, the Democratic effort to build out media was Air America Radio. Air America started in 2005, died in 2010. Air America helped put Barack Obama in the White House. And I don't know why Democrats don't remember this. But Air America was a major force in the 2008 election, and Air America had an awful lot to do with why Barack Obama became president in 2008. And two years later, the people who had been funding that, the big donor Democrats, the Democracy Alliance and groups like that, they were like, well, you know, if they can't stand on their own two feet, screw them. And they walked away. Meanwhile, Rupert Murdoch is shoveling cash into Fox News, knowing that eventually he'd get a good return. But Air America died in 2010, and now basically in 90% of America, all you can hear is conservative talk radio. And then the conservatives went to Facebook and Google and lobbied them and harassed them until basically these two groups changed their algorithms to downrank progressive news sites. As a result of this, you know, Mother Jones took a huge hit. The nation took a huge hit. Alternate, they ended up selling themselves. You know, it was a nonprofit organization. They sold themselves to a new owner. He's done a great job with it, but, you know, 
they're having to do it on a subscription model now because their traffic is down so much. And yet at the same time, Google and Facebook are promoting right-wing websites like the Daily Caller and whatnot that are part of this you know, right-wing media. <laughs> we had a, a host on the other day, uh, Ann Nelson, I believe her name was, uh, who wrote this book, you know, Shadow Network, who was saying basically it was a, a right-wing conspiracy. A bunch of billionaires got together and did this. And so if Democrats don't get their media act together, and I talked to Tom Steyer about this on the air yesterday, and I said, you know, hey, are you guys going to invest in media? And he was like, no. Um, then, you know, we've got a serious problem. This hard right narrative that is being promoted to Americans all across the country, particularly in rural areas. You flip on the radio in a rural area and all you can hear is right wing talk radio, religious talk radio, which is in increasingly politicized. And in many places, country music, which is also increasingly politicized. None of that is an accident. This is all the result of massive investments by right-wing billionaires who want to control this country. And, you know, they're pulling it off. So anyway, you know, take a breath and don't panic. Beverly in Los Angeles. Hey, Beverly, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. And thank you so much for everything you do. Um, when I was watching the returns coming in, I know when they got to Miami-Dade, I was watching between uh, Free Speech TV and MSNBC. I went back and forth. And they're like, oh, Miami-Dade has so few votes, you know. Well, they're all sitting in boxes in the post office there. Right. But it looks like there are uh, a substantial number of ballots for Miami-Dade and, and presumably Broward as well that were j simply never delivered. And they had to have been delivered by three or five o'clock, whatever the time cutoff was for Florida. It varies from state to state. But it is one of those states where they have to be delivered by Election Day. And, you know, they're going to be coming in today and tomorrow and the next day. And, you know, if they come in at all. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Beverly. This is uh, Louis DeJoy needs to be in jail. Yes, Absolutely. And we're going to find out here if Judge Emmett Sullivan has the courage of his convictions. Uh, it's very rare that a federal official is held in contempt of court, criminal contempt of court, which is what it would take. But it is possible. We'll see how that shakes out. Thank you for the call. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's up? Tom, thank you so much for taking my call. No need to panic. You know, uh, we are going to win. I'm going to tell you a story. John Buchanan told Richard Nixon, Richard Melhouse Nixon, he always called Melhouse by his middle name. He told him, look, the country is divided, but we have the bigger half. Fast forward now. The country is divided, and we have the bigger half. So no need to panic. And all we have to focus on is these mail-in ballots, make sure that they don't get eliminated. You know, all that thousand lawyers team, we want to make sure they're activated and every ballot counted. And the other thing I wanted to ask you, you know, Florida finished early counting, but Pennsylvania did not. I mean, what, what, what's the issue there? I, I don't understand. I thought they started counting at the same time. There are two factors. The individual counties control the election processes in Pennsylvania. And so you've got a half a dozen or more counties, a couple of them fairly good size, but you know, I mean, they're not as big as Philadelphia. But you've got a bunch of counties that simply said, we're not going to start counting mail-in ballots until Wednesday. Uh. And they're doing this as part of Trump's strategy of 
make it look like Trump is winning the election. The mail-in ballots will be mostly for Biden. In fact, they're running 78% for Biden in Pennsylvania. And the mail-in ballots will come in later. And if we can hold those mail-in ballots off as long as possible during that time when it looks like Trump is ahead, he can declare victory and we can kind of repeat Florida in 2000. The reason that they're coming in slow out of Philadelphia and Detroit, frankly, for that matter, is that, you know, for years and years and years, black parts of the United States, parts of the United States that are heavily African-American, have had their election infrastructure essentially not well funded. Both the okay. Pennsylvania and the Michigan legislatures, which control the funding for all this stuff, are still controlled by Republicans. And so they have antiquated election systems and structures, and it takes time to get things done. It's sad, uh, but it's that's the, the case. Omar, thanks for the call. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. Back, Tom Harbin here with you. I started to, uh, you know, as I was doing my opening rant here, I started to go down another tangent. And I want to make this point very, very clearly. I started out pointing out that the television network's business model is keep people watching. Keep people watching so you can deliver ads that will make money for the networks. That's their first imperative. It's not the truth. It's not the news. It's not what's factual. It's keep people watching. And so we know that a dozen or so states are going to decide the election because of the Electoral College. But the states that come in first are not the states that are going to decide the election. And it was hysterical to watch because they were like, Oh my God, look at this. Look at Florida. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll take Florida. Oh, Georgia, maybe, you know. These are not states that are in play. Or if they are in play, it'll be a big deal and it'll be in a blowout election, but they're not states that are in play in a big way. Oh, look at that. Indiana just went to Donald Trump and people are going, oh no, oh no. You know, we hadn't gotten to the battleground states yet. At around 1030 Eastern time, I just said, screw this, you know. We're not going to know the result of this election until maybe Thursday afternoon. But it's in my mind, it's obviously going to be Joe Biden. And so I sent out a tweet that said, you know, I'm going to go do something a little more pleasurable than watching this. So I'll let you know when my dentist is done with me. And that's how I was feeling. Like watching this is like having your teeth drilled. I, you know, I'd rather do something else. And so Louise and I went to bed. It was like, OK, it's, it's our bedtime anyway. So that's what's up with that. But there's there's some really fascinating stuff going on. Number one, you all know I've been on Donald Trump's mailing list since 2015 when I sent him five bucks. And I have gotten more than 20 fundraising appeals from the Trump campaign and from super PACs associated with it that he has sold my name to in the past 24 hours. More than 20 of them. And one of the things that I find really interesting, and I got one just about 10 minutes ago from Trump, you know, uh, Democrats want to steal this election. And I thought, I wonder how they're, you know, when you when you click on the, you know, yes, I want to save the, you know, democracy in America link. Where does it take you? So I clicked on it and it takes you to a donate to Donald Trump page. And about halfway down that page. There are two little boxes that are pre-clicked and in large type. Now, keep in mind, why 20 of these things? Because he is sucking dry the suckers who follow him and send him money. He is sucking them dry. 
He's getting ready for after he's no longer president. He's, he, I mean, you know, we know, you know, there's a fair amount of evidence now that at least $300 million out of the billion dollars that the Trump campaign has raised has gone into someplace, right? It has vanished. It's unaccountable for $340 million. And I'm guessing it's either in Donald Trump's pocket or in some bank account he's going to use for his next adventure. And I think he's doing this is continuing, right? That, those numbers are from a month ago. But anyhow, there's these two pre-checked boxes. And one says, in large type, the Democrats want to steal this election. There will be fraud like you've never seen, plain and simple. We need air help to ensure we have the resources to protect the results and keep fighting even after Election Day. Don't wait. Step up now to defend the elect- integrity of our election. And then in very small type that is not bold, underneath that, this is a checkbox that's pre-checked. In very small type that's not bold, it says, make this a weekly recurring donation until December 14th. And then there's another one right below it that's also checked that says, defend the election. The radical left is going to do whatever it takes and try to rip another Republican victory away from you. We need to fight back. Please make another contribution right now while we autom- that will automatically process on November 6th. And then it says, in a little tiny type underneath that, donate an additional $20 automatically on 11-6. Which, of course, will become an automatic donation all the way up to December 14th every week. Plus, they're going to charge your credit card for whatever you already gave. And I don't think people are realizing this. I don't think Trump followers, supporters, Trump humpers are, are realizing that they, when they make a donation to Trump, and this has been going on for as, as well as I could tell for about a week and a half, that they're going to make a donation, and it's going to be a recurring donation, whether they want it or not. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book club book for today is Talk Radio's America by Brian Rosenwald, subtitled How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Then Took Over the United States. This is from the introduction. August 1, 1988 marked the beginning of the long road to President Donald Trump. But even political junkies took little notice of the fateful events that unfolded that day as a failed disc jockey and former Kansas City Royals executive named Rush Hudson Limbaugh III made his national radio debut. Only a small audience tuned in. So poorly commemorated was the moment that we don't even know how many stations broadcast day one of Limbaugh's syndicated program. Limbaugh claims the show began on 56 affiliates, while other counts range from 57 and 87. From the beginning, the show was brash, entertaining, controversial, and boundary-pushing. Before Limbaugh, this sort of programming did not exist outside major cities. In 1983, there were just 59 talk radio stations nationwide, and the program on many of these station, those stations consisted of advice shows, stayed interviews, and caller-driven discussions of everything from neighborhood schools to abominable snowmen. Most talk radio programming focused on local concerns, and most of the industry's stars, such as Larry King and Sally Jesse Raphael, had left-of-center views but rarely shared them. At the time of Limbaugh's national debut, talk radio had negligible political impact. In talk radio hotbeds such as Boston, hosts might influence local and statewide policy debates, especially on visceral issues such as seatbelt laws. But talk radio was not a partisan force, and it had no role in national politics. In fact, the wall-to-wall conservative political talk stations that dominate the AM airwaves today were impossible until 1987, thanks to a regulation called the Fairness Doctrine. 
That year, however, the Federal Communications Commission eliminated the policy, which required broadcasters of opinionated programming on controversial issues to offer an array of viewpoints. In this more permissive environment, Limbaugh would go on to revolutionize the radio business. In doing so, he helped unintentionally to spawn a major new political player. Within a decade, the broadcast format he inaugurated aired on more than a thousand stations and kept millions company as they commuted, worked, and shouted back at their radios. It took just a few years before conservative talk radio began to influence national politics and public policy. That influence only grew throughout the decades as the business changed. Over the course of the 1990s and early 2000s, the, numbers of, the number of nationally syndicated talk shows rose dramatically, and the content of talk radio programs became increasingly political and conservative. Liberal pundits and some scholars agree on the broad outlines of the story. Conservative station executives conspiring with their Republican allies built a format modeled on Limbaugh's program and thousands of Limbaugh wannabes cropped up all over the country. Executives, hosts, and politicians turned talk radio into an appendage of the Republican Party, using the platform to get Republicans elected and advance the party's agenda. The success of talk radio led to the development of partisan and ideological cable news networks, and some hosts complemented their radio shows with primetime cable programs. Eventually, this content found a home in the new digital sphere, with equally strident cheerleaders proliferating on blogs and other online publications. This narrative makes sense, especially to liberals. After all, many conservative media executives and their corporate political action committees donate to Republican candidates, and most hosts champion conservative candidates and causes. This narrative is wrong. In reality, the story of talk radio's emergence as a popular conservative format and the impact it had on American politics weaves together two distinct complex tales. Neither has anything to do with a conspiracy to create a media servant of the Republican Party. The first describes how talk radio spread across America and the process saving AM radio from financial ruin. Limbaugh had no intention of affecting elections or legislation and no inkling that he could. Nor did any of his early successors. The executives who gave these hosts a chance also had no interest in political outcomes. Hosts and their bosses were in business. They wanted to captivate listeners and make money, and they discovered, essentially by accident, that conservative political talk in the mouth of an entertaining personality achieved this. Conservative hosts had strong opinions, but their primary goal was, and still is, financial gain. And it is because they realized financial gain that more and more stations invested in their style and content while divesting from competing formats. The second story concerns talk radio's transformation after 1995 into an almost entirely conservative and doctrinaire medium that eventually spawned successors in other media, took over the Republican Party, and reshaped it in hosts' and listeners' image. Limbaugh was a great innovator, but he didn't change American media and politics all at once or on his own. In conservative talk radio's early days, hosts shared stations with liberal talkers and apolitical programs. There was not an immediate sense that conservative radio was the future, either. But gradually, its success snowballed thanks to trial and error in the radio business, regulatory changes, political events, happenstance, and most importantly, listener behavior. Hosts also got a boost from marginalized conservative Republican politicians who realized that talk radio would enable them to circumnavigate the mainstream media and deliver their message directly to voters. The book, Talk Radio's America. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. 
Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Just checked uh, the Times and the Post and, you know, the online sources for which races have been called for whom. And I think this is moving in Joe Biden's direction. Meanwhile, the uh, U.S. Postal Service, uh, the initial headline, as U.S. Postal Service failed to deliver 27 percent of mail-in ballots in South Florida. I retweeted that story. This is based on John Cruzel's reporting from The Hill. And uh, he's got the, the spreadsheets and whatnot to prove it. Um, the 27 percent. Now there are folks who are saying, well, wait a minute, it's maybe not that high. And so, you know, if you're looking at my Twitter feed, take that with a grain of salt, that 27 percent. It may not be that high because in response to that judge's order, the post office started pushing ballots out with, without running them through the scanning machines that caused them to be verified as having been delivered. So there may have been more ballots delivered than we know for sure. But it sure looks like there's still a lot of ballots in Florida. We'll, we'll find out. You know, th- this stuff is going to come out. And again, I, w- I would remind you, two years ago in 2018, the day after the election, we were sitting around on this program talking about, geez, how did we do so badly? And then as the mail-in votes were coming in and as the urban areas were coming in, and uh, you know, we were like, whoa, we really actually kind of blew out that election. And, you know, this is pretty straightforward stuff. And you've got some places like, you know, some of those counties in Pennsylvania where the, you know, that are controlled by partisan Republicans, the election apparatus is controlled by partisan Republicans who are saying we aren't even going to count the mail-in votes until the day after the election, because that'll make it look like Trump is ahead and it'll play into his narrative. But the larger issue, I think, is, you know, answering the question, why is it that there are always long lines in black neighborhoods and in Hispanic neighborhoods? And why is it that it takes a longer time for these urban areas to report their vote? 
And of course, the implied answer to that question that you will hear on right wing hate radio is, oh, those black people, they just don't know how to do things. And the implication of that is, oh, they're just dumb or something like that, you know, which is just like this most insanely racist meme. But, you know, white America has just accepted this for decades. Oh, yeah, I guess that must be what it is. No, it's because, you know, the, it, Detroit is coming in slow because their election systems are old and antiquated and they're not well funded. Why is that? Well, because the Republicans control the, control the purse strings in Michigan. They control the legislature. The same thing in Georgia. The same, I mean, you know, city, state after state where you've got large cities that are coming in really late, you will find that those, those, the, you know, the election systems in those cities has been radically underfunded over the years. It's not, by and large, happening in blue states that fund election systems well. So, you know, it's just more racism and discrimination and everything else. So, anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls. Jenny in Miami Beach, Florida. Hey, Jenny, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm calling you from uh, Miami. So, yeah, you know, I have to agree with a lot of the things that you're saying today, and I just wanted to point out, like, this whole thing. It's, it's twofold, basically. It's the, it's the Spanish media in this country, the Spanish-speaking media in this country. It's fundamentally, it's fear-mongers. It keeps people informed about what's going on in their countries and doesn't really inform them about the electoral process here and what's actually going on here in the country in which they live now. And it consistently promotes conservative candidates. Case in point. Maria Salazar, who is beating Donna Shalala, our Democratic U.S. House representative here, is, is being currently is beaten by 9,000 points by Salazar, who was a former Univision uh, reporter and, you know, was involved in kind of like heading up the debates for Univision here in Miami when they happened in like 2016. So she's basically, you know, just, just someone of the media. And then Jimenez beat uh, here in Florida, another U.S. House race. So we're going from having 13 seats to 11 seats if these two numbers hold. On top of the fact, I just want to say that this whole, the reason they lost South Florida is this whole, the Democrats lost South Florida, is this whole socialism fear-mongering that they've been doing for years. They basically dug their own grave starting way back in 2016 when they insisted on labeling Bernie Sanders a socialist. They did this. This was their messaging. And all Trump had to do was come on and, and grab on to the fear of all of like the Cubans and the Venezuelans and just come and grab on to that and just take their take their vote. And it was just really easy. And I think that it was a dem- part of the Democratic Party's fault is their their messaging. And like, unfortunately, like they dug their own graves in that in that area. Yeah, I think you're right. And if you look at the ownership of these Spanish language stations around the country, many of them are now increasingly owned by large networks that have right wing agendas, much as as we saw with, you know, when Mitt Romney's Bain Capital took over Clear Channel right around 2000. I forget which year it was, but or t- 2010, I was going to say. Then what did Clear Channel do? They started dumping progressive programming left and right and started increasing the amount of right wing programming that they have. And to think that these giant media corporations are not political is, is, uh, is naive. So, Jenny, thank you. I tweeted you. that Spot the other on. day. I, I tweeted that the other day. We need more progressive media and, and Spanish-speaking yeah. progressive media. We need it on YouTube. We need it in writing. We need it in print and on radio. And we need yeah. smart, intelligent people to get out there and talk and educate and inform. I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. And the problem is that, at least with regard to media, you know, with radio and television, it's a matter of money. 
and the left-wing billionaires have not been paying attention to this, with a very few exceptions. And the right-wing billionaires have been all over this since the 1980s. Jenny, thank you. Spot on. Uh, everything you said. Edward in San Antonio. Hey, Edward, what's up? I just want to also piggyback on the last caller. The dress of poor showing in Miami. Can we just kind of dissect this concept of the Hispanic vote? I can only use the example here in San Antonio. The Hispanics here, they, they call themselves Tex-Mex. So they're not going to be identifying with the Hispanics in California who call themselves so, so Chicanos. So they consume the same amount of right-wing Fox News hate radio, as you've stated, as their white counterparts. They breathe it. They basically look at themselves as white people with brown, brown tans. For no offense, but that's how they kind of look at it. I can tell you that they do not relate to children in cages. Even if there are children of Hispanic or Latino descent, because that, that's not they, they, right. they, they don't look at this. That's their children. While I have more affinity towards those children in cages, they do not. I can only say that I think Joy Reid of MSNBC described it correctly. I think we as a country, we're more like Donald Trump than we realize. After four years of children cages, impeachment, proving that he had connection with the Russians, Americans, 50% went out and voted for him. What does that say about us? I I know we want to sit and look at the bright side. Even if Biden wins, how is he going to govern we can pretty much put that whole reform um, ACA off this table. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. And one yeah. more thing. Stop. Edward, if I could just Stop. speak to what you just said yeah. first, and then you're one more yeah. thing very quickly. Yeah. If you listen to yeah. Spanish language media in Texas, one of the things, uh, Spanish language talk radio, one of the messages that you're going to hear as they're talking to uh, fellow Hispanics is you're in America, you got yours. You may be first generation, you may not even be here legally, but they're speaking mostly to the voters. So you're first gen- you may be first generation, you're still speaking Spanish. Um, you're here, you're working hard, you're out there doing roofing every day or whatever it may be. You, and, and there's all these people from south of the border who wanna come steal your job and work for less than you. And which is the old message. I mean, this this was the message they were pitching in the 40s and 50s and 60s to white people about black people. And then they started pitching it to black people about Hispanic people about, you know, in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And now they're pitching it to Hispanic people about immigrants. And it's just the same old, you know, racist. They want your job stuff. Back to you, Edward. I just want to say that we're going to have to organize. We need an infrastructure as you stated earlier, from a more liberal side where you get the, that information out. We need those who have the money to step up because those with the biggest microphone are going to always be the ones that people are going to listen to. And we need to, I'm yeah. talking about the left-wing billionaires. They need to step their game up. And we need to stop this coming in. Well, I'm going to extend my hands. We need to stop that. Take care. Yeah. Yeah, this is war. Edward, thank you. Thank you very much. Spot on on every point you made. But we're kind of processing the election today. I think we all need to just take a deep breath here. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's your media support group for We the People of the United States. The Tom Hartman Program back with more of your calls in just a moment. Did you know that there have been eight 
federal judges who have been convicted and removed from the federal bench. Fifteen altogether have been impeached. Eight have been removed from office since, uh, well, since the beginning. Three of them since 1988, including one judge, Thomas Porteous, down in Louisiana, who was impeached and removed from office for signing false financial declarations under penalty of perjury. Which it turns out it looks like Clarence Thomas did for quite a number of years when he uh, did not disclose, as he is required by law to do, that his wife was taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Heritage Foundation. That and his perjury around Anita Hill and others, there were, there were uh, numerous witnesses that didn't even get called, could uh, legitimately spark an impeachment of Clarence Thomas. We've got a video about this over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi, uh, Tom. And, and, you know, thanks for everything you do. But I want to bring up these small population states and how they are so overrepresented. Now, I do not remember offhand how many people had to live in a territory before that territory became a state. It, 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 what was it, 50,000, 100,000? Whatever it was. I, at, at the time that Abraham Lincoln made <laughs> Nevada a state, the threshold was 130,000, and the population of Nevada at that time was 7,000. But he needed another state. He needed two more Republican senators, and so he did it. And when Ulysses Grant, I believe it was, I might be wrong on that, it might have been uh, somebody later, it might have been Harrison, made North and South Dakota two states. It was, it was still 130,000 for one state, and the population of those two states, I'm doing this from memory, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right. I, it's in my book on voting. The population of those two states combined was around 70 or 80,000, something in that neighborhood. So, well, uh, but they needed four Republican senators, and so they got them. And this is why we need to make Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico states. You know, well, I have, another, Anyhow, back to I have another suggestion, and that would be to actually amalgamate some of these states that have very few people, like North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana, make that all one state. And you know, the Republicans are all for less government. Well, there you're getting rid of four state governments to have one. Now, they would howl and scream about that, the Republicans and the right wing and conservatives. But how about splitting California in two then to even things up there? You could do it right at the San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara County line, because I can't remember the inland counties, Kern County, maybe. That line, I think, goes all the way across the straight, the state to uh, Nevada. It would be a very easy cut of the state. So, you know, I don't know if that could ever happen, that you could amalgamate some of the smaller states into one. But that would, I believe, help solve the problem, because... D.C., I hope it could become a state. I know Puerto Rico, in this election, there was a referendum about making it into a state, and I believe it had over 50%. But who knows if Puerto Rico would, it would ever become this a state. This was yesterday? This was on the ballot yeah, yesterday in Puerto I, Rico? I heard that on uh, Amy Goodman, Democracy Now! this today. Oh, I'll have to look that yeah. up. Yeah. So anyway, that's all I have to say. Again, I don't know if uh, the, the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming would want to... Uh, turn into they, one state. They but, don't and they you know, won't. What else can it's, you do? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, just adding adding D.C. Uh, as a starting point, D.C. has a larger population than Wyoming. 
So mm -hmm. I believe D.C. has a larger population than Vermont. I believe D.C. is a little over 800,000 and Vermont's a little over 600,000. Those numbers are probably a decade old. But yeah, this is something that should, you know, we should be seriously talking about. And it's something the Democrats need to be focusing on. It does. It is going to require controlling the Senate. I mean, you know, it's it's it, it takes sure. a lot to make a state. Um, yeah, we could. But, we could have, uh, and the Republicans uh, are going to fight it. We could have New Go England ahead. become all one state then maybe. Or split it up. Mm, that wouldn't South be good New for England us. And North New England. <laughs> <laughs> that would not be good for us. But I get what you're saying, Dennis. I just, you know, it's not going to happen. So, yeah, I, I think that what we need to be looking at is a media strategy rather than a geography strategy. But I'm, I'm all in favor of both. Dennis, thank you for the call. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is our old buddy, Dr. Justin Frank, MD. He is the psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University. He's the author of Trump on the Couch. His previous books include Obama and Bush on the Couch, uh, two separate books, Obama on the Couch, Bush on the Couch. And uh, his Twitter handle is Justin Frank MD, spelled just like it sounds. And Dr. Frank, welcome back to the program. Tell me about sadism, if we could speak generally about it first, and then I want to well, get into your thoughts on this. Go ahead. Okay, well, sadism is a uh, concept that involves, was based on Marquis de Sade originally, but it's a concept that involves taking pleasure in inflicting cruelty to someone else. And it originally was a sexual pleasure, erotic pleasure, at inflicting cruelty on a masochist, on somebody who enjoys feeling pain. I don't think the American people enjoy feeling the pain that Trump is inflicting upon us, however. But that's the original I, concept. But sadism really has to do with an innate, deep need to be cruel and destructive and the pleasure at doing it. And Donald Trump is a great example of that. My recollection from being in school years ago was that one element of sadism was control. That a sadist is not only deriving pleasure from causing pain to other people, but that a component of that pleasure was the feeling of now I'm back in control. Am I remembering that correctly? You are really got a great memory, yes. It's exactly correct, and it's true that it's about having control and being in control and being the most powerful person in a relationship so, and dominating it. Right, so it's what a, is this It's a reversal of the way a child feels when the mother, when they feel hopelessly dependent on their mothers, so they end up becoming, uh, have this great need to dominate and control. So how does this inform us about the way that Donald Trump and other members of the Trump administration who have been not just willing, but in some cases, enthusiastic collaborators about the way that they've approached the covid crisis, where we've got now almost a quarter million dead Americans as a consequence of the way that they responded? Well, he does two kinds of sadism that I just wrote in this little article, which was cleverly titled Sadist Walks Into a Pandemic. And I think that it's uh, unfortunately not a joke because he is the sadist and he had a lot to do with the pandemic. The way a sadist and his uh, enablers do is they do something called uh, malignant neglect. They ignore it. 
but they ignore it knowing how bad and how dangerous it's going to be. So they let the virus inflict its damage and destructiveness. And then they say, oh, I had nothing to do with it. I couldn't do it. So part of the sadism here is the evasion of responsibility. But the worst part for me has been the teasing part. Trump is a sadist who teases people. I think the vaccine, for instance, is a tease. It's not that different from Trump University or from Trump stakes or from promising people things. I actually think his presidency is a form of a tease. And the more I talk with you, the clearer I become that it really is about teasing the American people about the things he's going to do. He's never done one of the things that he's promised to do other than stack the courts and give some tax breaks. But that's about it. But the rest is a tease about infrastructure, about helping people, about helping people of color. All of these things are teases. And that's what a sadist learns how to do. They get the other person to need them, and that is a way they can affect their power and and inflict their power. And I know that you've been concerned about his efforts to steal the election, but one of the ways of stealing an election like this for him is to find a way to make it seem legitimate so people don't know that he's been stealing it. And that's pretty hard to do now because people are on to him. But basically, by declaring a victory or doing something else, he's going to try to make it seem legitimate when actually there's a tremendous effort to suppress votes, to not count votes, to throw away ballots, to scare people away. Lots of different efforts that he's making, and lately some violent intimidation, it seems like, that's really quite disturbing. All of those are in the service of sustaining power, but they're also, they have a cruel element. What is the impact on people in the micro sense, for example, Trump's children, in the somewhat larger micro sense, uh, the people around him, like Cohen, you know, Michael Cohen, who was with him for, what, 15 years, something like that. Yeah. And then in the larger sense on the American people and the world, frankly, I mean, he's been inflicting his, if you're clearly saying that you believe that Donald Trump is a sadist, he's been inflicting his sadism on our democratic allies all around the world while embracing, yes. you know, his, I would say, fellow sadists among the authoritarians around the world. Yes. What kind of impact does that have on people and institutions around him? Well, I think that there's no general one impact that it can have on people and institutions. There are certain basic categories of impact that his sadism has. On people who are his supporters, they end up rallying behind him, and part of that rallying is based on fear that his sadistic attacks will turn on them. So they're going to be on the right side of his sadism, standing behind him and supporting him. So they are afraid of him. And there are a lot of people like that, including a lot of people who are intimidated as voters. But there's a lot of other people who try to stand up to it. And the effect that that has is it can strengthen people if they're not afraid of him and if they can see him for who he is. And I think that's something that is happening. It started really with the BLM movement after that murder in Minnesota. I really think that People have started to stand up to him and confront him. The Lincoln Project has confronted him. Those are Republicans who really believe in the Republican 
policies, but they just cannot stand the fact that he, that Donald Trump is the representative of America, that he's destructive and he's breaking down institutions. So I think that the problem that is going to happen to the rest of the world is they won't know how to trust us. I assume they will trust Joe Biden if he wins, but it's not going to be natural. He knows a lot of people, but I think trust for this country is going to be hard won because we, he's my president, Donald Trump. We elected him. I mean, it's very hard for people to trust. You know, people want to know what's wrong with America. What's happened? And we are really under the sway of a kind of a cult leader that has a sadistic quality. Jim Jones was the ultimate sadist when he killed all of his followers, got them to drink the Kool-Aid. It's a sadistic act that invites mass suicide. And it's really an assertion of power on Jim Jones's part. And for Trump, it's What's the same thing. I think Trump's children, you asked that earlier, I'm sorry, I didn't, got off that. Sure. They are afraid of him. And they support him no yeah. matter what the way the abused child of a parent supports the abuser out of fear. Yeah, and Donnie with his frenetic, uh, we just have oh my God. to break. Donnie with his frenetic videos <laughs> looks like a, a little kid who's frightened. He looks terrified, and I think they all are frightened. Some are better able to hide also, it than others. Yeah, they're also afraid of going to jail. <laughs> yeah, well, suspect. that's another thing. I would, I, I would love on another occasion, I, I'm sorry, I can't control these breaks, but you know, when, when I'm doing the show remote, it just happens when it happens. But I would love to get into a conversation with you about authoritarianism and sadism in the association. Dr. Very Justin much. Frank. Thank you. Justin Frank, MD, is his Twitter handle. Thank you, Dr. Frank. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And his most recent book, Trump on the Couch. If you don't have a copy, check it out. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're reading today from Justin Frank, Dr. Justin Frank's book, Trump on the Couch, Inside the Mind of the President. He's the guy who wrote Bush on the Couch and Obama on the Couch. He's a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. This is from the introduction. There's no question that Trump is mentally unfit in ways that make him psychologically unsuited for the presidency. That in itself is a truly alarming turn of events 
And I'd write the entire book in all caps if I thought that would better convey the sense of urgency with which it is written and should be read. Any number of troubling mental illness diagnoses and character evaluations can be and have been accurately applied to Trump. Both can vary from analyst to analyst, however, without necessarily sacrificing any of the accuracy. More to the point, the true value of a diagnosis is to determine an appropriate course of treatment, and there's no indication that any sort of treatment is a viable option. Trump on the couch then seeks not simply to make the case that Trump is not well, but rather to show how he is unwell in ways that would have been of particular interest to the applied psychoanalysts whose investigation likely preceded our own, the Russians, and perhaps even their American allies or counterparts, who in the long tradition of intelligence gathering examined Trump's psyche and found an opportunity for exploitation. Trump's presidency caps a lifetime of dysfunction and disorder that is not likely to be healed while he is in office. Just as Trump's ascendancy among voters gives expression to long-standing trends in the American electorate's psyche that are not going to be easily addressed. However, if we can identify certain aspects of these disorders and trends that may have contributed to Trump and his voters fusing into a shared belief system, then we have a better chance of fostering the kind of honest cultural discussion that will be necessary in order to contain and repair the damage that has already been done. Understanding Trump calls for a consideration of his psychodynamics almost certainly more rigorous than he has ever embarked upon on his own. Trump dismissed psychotherapy as a crutch in his 2004 Playboy interview. Years later, talking to biographer Michael D'Antonio, he described in greater detail a generalized aversion to introspection beyond the therapeutic setting. Quote, I don't like to analyze myself because I might not like what I see, he told D'Antonio. I don't like to analyze myself. I don't like to think too much about the past, end of quote. Even armed with a detailed family history, we can't capture Trump in action with only the tools of applied psychoanalysis. Like some of the most disturbed patients I've worked with, Trump is so erratic, constantly changing the topic, elevating the stakes, and raising the volume, that one doesn't know what to expect from him next. It's hard to imagine him in treatment. Even as the subject of applied psychoanalytical investigation, he behaves like a patient who is simultaneously banging in a consulting room window rattling on his door, ringing the phone, and texting or tweeting his demands for attention. Trump presents so many troubling affects that it's hard to remember them all. In the final weeks of the first year of Trump's presidency, Michael Wolff and David K. Johnston published accounts of the Trump White House that present a president with a startling number of disturbing characteristics. Any one of these demonstrable and suspected traits would raise calls for a psychoanalytic investigation if it was done on a layperson. In a president, in aggregate, they are truly cause for alarm. The list of worrisome, evident, and alleged attributes that emerge in these and other portraits is long. Narcissist, liar, racist, sexist, adulterer, baby, hypocrite, chiseler, tax cheat, outlaw, psychopath, paranoid, fraud, ignorant, vengeful, delusional, arrogant, greedy, contemptuous, unsympathetic, learning disabled, cruel, obstructor of justice, threat to the Constitution, traitor. The list is so long that it can be overwhelming. It's a challenge to remember the beginning by the time you make it to the end. There are times when I wish someone would help us remember all the troubling aspects of Trump's character and behavior, past and present, in a way that would encourage recognition of the totality of his pathology rather than its component parts.
which individually cause alarm before being temporarily forgotten when the next emergency presents itself. As an applied psychoanalyst, my task is not only to appreciate the full list, but also to ignore the big picture and focus on a single pathology at a time. Practitioners of applied psychoanalysis approach their subject as both theoretician and clinician. The theoretician endeavors to piece things together, to figure things out, while the clinician tries to approach each session capable of being surprised, as if his mind were a blank slate. The analysis in the following pages aspires to accomplish both goals, reviewing Trump's record with a clinician's eye, preparing to be surprised by the unexpected observation, and assembling these findings into a more comprehensive portrait. The image of hypothetical patient Trump rattling the consulting room door and banging on the window reminds us that President Trump doesn't want us to see the entire list at once. Not only that, but patients I've treated who are reminiscent of Trump cannot tolerate being inside the consulting room either. They leave my office whenever they feel unable to think their way through an anxiety-provoking interpretation, much the way Trump leaves press briefings when the questions get too close. Trump on the Couch by Justin Frank. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together. And it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, John in St. Mary's, Idaho. Yes, sir. Hey, I had to laugh at your last caller saying to get the states together like that. Yeah. Because the bureaucracy of doing that would be take how many decades to get over all that crap. And not only that, Washington State has been wanting to do the same thing. Eastern Washington has been wanting to divide between Western Washington because of Olympia. That's where the power is, the money, everything else. So that's not going to happen. But it was nice to hear. We've had the same conversation here in Oregon. You know, there's a secession movement, too, for Eastern Oregon. It's very right wing, and they want to split (laughs) it off. So back to you, anyway, what I'm calling in about is that if Trump wins his presidency, I have an article here, it's called Civil Servants, The Coming Trump Purge, and here's what it says. President Trump is paving the way for mass firings of civil servants if he wins the second term, said Lori Garnett in CNN.com. John, you don't need to read it. We we discourage people from reading on the air. But you're absolutely right. And he signed an executive order to make this possible two weeks ago, which which reorganized the civil service so that people who are professionals, people who are like, you know, heads of agencies or senior officers in agencies who may be scientists, maybe researchers, they've they've worked there for 10, 20, 30 years, NOAA, NASA, the CDC, etc. These professional, full-time, long-time civil servant scientists and whatnot, under his executive order, no longer have civil service protection. So they can be fired in an instant and replaced with a political appointee who is simply a Trump toady. He's preparing to do, if he gets reelected, he's going to do what Viktor Orban did in Hungary, which is strip all the professionals out of his government and replace them all with cronies and toadies. Right. Well, he wants nothing but yes people. 
Exactly. Bottom line. Exactly. And it's a danger, frankly, to democracy. You know, I don't know how to say it. It's a danger to democracy. John, thanks for the call. And thanks for pointing that out. Brett in Chicago. Hey, Brett, what's on your mind today? Hi there. So not to harp on the Miami County, but I feel like the numbers are fascinating and not in a good way. When I was watching, it seemed that Clinton had, you know, going back to 2016, Clinton had 624,000 votes and Trump had 333,000. But even with turnout up all over the country, this year Biden is only at 617, which is down 2%, and Trump is at 532,000, which is up 59%. Like the math doesn't even add up. It's because the ballots have not been delivered. It's because they're sitting in the post office. Even though the news blurb said that it had delivered every delayed ballot? No, the post office has not delivered every delayed ballot. Nobody is asserting that. The debate is, are there a few hundred ballots still sitting in the post office? Or are there a a few hundred thousand? And nobody's really sure down in Florida. I mean, the, the official numbers that the post office has put out and for this, I refer you over to dailycos.com or rawstory.com. Both of them have pretty good stories about this. But the numbers that the post office has put out seem to indicate that there are tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of South Florida ballots that have not been delivered. But those numbers may or may not be accurate because uh, the post office is saying that in response to uh, Judge Sullivan's order, they stopped tracking a lot of mail in order to just physically deliver it to the ballot counting places very, very quickly. So this is a story that's in process, that is shaking out. So we'll see where it goes. Absolutely. Thanks for all you do. Yeah, thank you. It's good to hear from you. Thank you very much. Nicole in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Hey, Nicole, you get the last call of the day. We have a minute to go. What's up? Okay, great. What I was going to say about Latino voters, I'll give you an example of my cousin he voted for trump and i said why would you vote for trump and you have like brothers and sisters that are mexican you know and he's puerto rican and i'm puerto rican they're half brothers Mm -hmm. and he said well what would you think would happen if all those people would come across the border they would ruin our country so what i'm saying is they pit us against each other that was my point earlier is in the 50s the 40s 50s 60s and 70s republicans were telling white voters Black people are coming for your jobs. Then in the 80s and 90s, they started saying to black voters, Hispanic people are coming for your jobs. And now they're saying to Hispanic voters, those undocumented Hispanics from south of the border are coming for your job. And I mean, they've been doing this. Look out for those people. They want your job. They used to. The other thing that they used to sell to white men was women are coming for your job. Right? And it's always been BS. Nobody's coming for your job, except maybe China. And that's because billionaires are shipping your jobs offshore. Nicole, thank you. Thank you. That was a great point to end the day on. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. It's built into, it's why it's called democracy. So get out there, get active. The heavy work is actually just about to begin. The election's just the setup. Now we've got some serious work to do. So tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.